How's everybody? Good. You know, there are some jobs that you'll never be successful at if you have a big old yellow streak running down the middle of your back. It doesn't matter how much knowledge or ability you possess, you got to have guts if you're going to be a professional bull rider, or a trapeze artist, or an X-game athlete. Those are the types of jobs that cowards need not apply. Let me mention one other that comes to my mind this morning, and that's being a parent. It doesn't matter how many books that you've read or how many seminars that you've attended. If you don't have the courage to make unpopular decisions, you're going to struggle as a parent. Now, where does the resolve to make those type of decisions really come from? Well, I believe one of the places it comes from is a great sense of clarity or awareness of one's primary responsibility as a parent. Those parents who have the, the courage to make decisions that are not popular, that don't go over very well, they understand, they realize that their responsibility is far greater than raising happy, healthy, successful kids. Now, do they have those desires for their children? Of course they do. But they understand that the ultimate goal is much greater for their children. What is that goal? Let's go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. What's our responsibility? God says, here's your responsibility. I, I want you to fill the earth with other human beings. And I want you to do so in a way in which they reflect my glory. That's our responsibility, that we fill the earth with children who reflect the glory of God. In order to accomplish that goal, it is going to require courageous decision-making. Now, courage also comes from this place of understanding ultimately what is at stake. I'll give you a simple example or illustration. When my youngest was 10 years old, Tate had a freak airsoft gun accident. One of his little buddies was on the downward slope of a hill, and he shot up at Tate, and the angle was just right in which that little rubber BB went up underneath his protective eye gear, and it hit him in the eyeball. And it caused a hemorrhage between his retina and his cornea and left a couple of abrasions. You'll shoot your eye out? That's funny in a Christmas movie, but not so much when it's your child. And for the next several days, we had to put antibacteria and steroid drops in Tate's eyes every three hours. Now, did that go over well with Tate? Not so much. You know, who wants to be woken up in the middle of the night? Who wants to have drops put in their eye? But no matter what Tate said to us, do you think that deterred us from doing that? Of course not. Because we as parents understood what was at stake. His vision was at stake. And so he could whine and he could plead and he could say, I'm tired of it and I don't want to do this. But we stuck to it because we understood he needed his vision. I share that to simply say this, that I've heard parents at times make statements like this. We try to have family devotions. We try to bring the kids to church. We try to say no to certain activities, but they get so upset. It's just not 
worth it. And I've been one of those parents. And the stakes are way too high for us to cower in those particular moments. I want to share with you a story of Jesus. It's not the easiest story to listen to, but obviously he tells it for a great reason. Luke chapter 16. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. And at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. And even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received the bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all of this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, and nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. I share that story with you this morning simply to remind you that our children, as well as all of us, are going to spend eternity either in a place of comfort and security or a place of torment. On the positive side, I was reading this morning, uh, early this morning out of the Psalms, and God said, one day all of the righteous will see my face. As I read that, I thought how much I want to see God's face and how much I desperately desire for my boys to see God's face. And you know what? Whether they spend eternity in this place of comfort and with God and enjoying his love or this place of torment, it has nothing to do with how nice your kids are. And it has nothing to do with whether or not they made the varsity team. It has nothing to do with whether or not they're popular with their peers. It has nothing to do with the college that they were able to do. It comes down to one matter and one matter alone. Did he or did she surrender his or her life fully to Jesus Christ? That's all that matters. And if we don't have the courage to make decisions that move our kids in the direction of Jesus Christ, then we are failing them in the worst way. And so this morning I want to share with you a couple of decisions that I believe are important for every parent to make, but they demand serious courage because they're not easy decisions to make. So are you ready? Here's, here's the first decision. First, refuse to allow your children, your kids, to be your top priority. Now, they're going to fight for it. 
And in our child-centric society, you may receive some, some shame for it. I want to encourage you this morning to swat that shame away. For the sake of your children's spiritual well-being, first, they need to know that they come in second or third place behind your relationship with God. Now, if there's any story in Scripture that reminds us of the importance of this, it's the story of Abraham and Isaac. Now, for those of you who may not remember or be familiar with the story, here it is in a nutshell, just a couple sentences. God says to a father by the name of Abraham, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your boy, Isaac, and I want you to offer him as a sacrifice to me. Now, why in the world would God, a loving heavenly father, make that kind of demand of Abraham? Well, I want you to listen to God's own explanation after stopping Abraham from following through. This is what he says in Genesis chapter 22, verse 10 through 12. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Who do you value most is what God wanted to know from Abraham. That was the big issue. That was the big question. That's why there was this, this test, this ask put in place. Abraham, what I need to know is who do you value the most? Who do you value the most? On various occasions, I've heard men stand up to prepare communion thoughts, and oftentimes they'll make this statement. They'll say something like this. Now, as a father, I could never possibly give up one of my children save the world as a comparison to what God has done for us. And I am right there with them. But what if God did make that request? Would you do it then? If the answer is still no, it reveals a couple of things that I think are important for us to pause for a moment and think about. If the answer is no, it reveals that we do not trust that God is truly good. This request that was made to Abraham, it did not sound good to Abraham, no doubt, but here's what Abraham knew. He knew his God was good. And because he knew his God was good, he was willing to follow through with this request. Take some time this afternoon and go back and read Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 through 19. Abraham's willing to say, Isaac, you're coming with me. We're going to build an altar. He gets ready to slay him. Why? Because he knows who God is. He knows that he's the God who's good, that he's the God who will provide, that he's the God who can raise the dead to life. And so if this is what God is going to ask of him, this is what he's going to do. Because his God is good, and because his God and his relationship with God is even more important than his relationship with his boy. And the second thing it reveals is this, is that it shows that our kids, rather than our God, is our primary object of worship. Now, good news this morning, God's not going to make the same request of you that he made of Abraham. Instead, God comes along and he says things like this. Here's what I need you to do to show who you value most. I want to ask you to give me the first of your, your time. 
I want to ask you to give me the first of your finances. I want to ask you to give me the first of your attention. And yet too often as parents, here's some of the things that we say or some of the things that go through our mind that shape our decisions. We say, you know what, God? Well, here's the deal. I can't give you the first of my finances because the kids want to go to Hawaii this year. And God, I can't give you the first of my, my time because little Susie's involved in 18 different after-school activities. And God, I can't give you the first of my attention because if I don't give all of my attention to little Johnny and helping him learn how to hit the curveball, he's not going to be a starter this year. Do any of you have children who act like the whole world revolves around them? That's what happens when they become the object of our worship. And so for their spiritual sake, their welfare, and our own, our children need to know that they come behind Jesus, that he's our top priority, that he's the one that we love most, that we value most, that we trust more than anyone else in our lives. Now, it's also important that you put your spouse before your kids. Too many couples put their marriage on hold as soon as kids enter into the home. It's a huge mistake. Oftentimes what happens is, here's what happens. As soon as those kids leave home, you begin to realize, I don't have anything in common with this person that I'm living with. I, I don't even really know this person that I'm living with. Because all your focus, all of your attention for 18 years has been on those kids, and that marriage has been ignored. But there's even a greater reason that you need to put that marriage before your kids. Your marriage is intended to preach the gospel to your kids. You say, how in the world does my marriage preach the gospel to my kids? Well, I want you to listen to what Paul has to say in Ephesians chapter 5. Beginning in verse 22, he says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. And husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Paul says this is a profound mystery, and it is. But the way that a husband and wife respond to each other and love each other is either going to attract or push people away from the good news of Jesus Christ. And please know this morning, nobody is watching your marriage closer than your kids. Listen to the words of William P. Farley. He writes this, and just... Kind of heads up here. 
I know we have some different views. Some of you are egalitarians, some of you are complementarians. For those of you who are egalitarians, please don't get caught up in the complementarian language here, okay? Listen to the big picture. Here's what Farley writes. When a husband loves his wife as Christ loves the church, washing her with the word, forgiving her, serving her, and tenderly leading her, his marriage says Christ loves his church. You can trust the groom. He is infinitely loving. Serve him. You won't be disappointed. But when a husband is unfaithful to his wife, verbally belittles her, loves his children more than her, or takes her for granted, his marriage says, Christ's love is not that great. He loves us only when we perform. You can't trust this Savior. You can't meet his expectations. He doesn't keep his promises. Why serve a fickle despot? His deeds say many things can separate us from the love of Christ. Wives also preach. When mom joyfully submits to her husband as unto the Lord, recognizing that he is her head as Christ is the head of the church, and that she is his body as the church is the body of Christ, it makes an attractive statement. When she does this for an unworthy husband, not because she trusts him, but because she trusts Christ to care for her, it points her children to Christ. Her behavior says Christ is trustworthy. It says the Son of God is infinitely good. You can trust him. My father is very imperfect, but mom trusts Christ to take care of her. And if she can trust Jesus this way, I can also but when a wife tells her children to obey Christ yet doesn't trust him enough to take care of her relationship with an imperfect husband, but seeks to control him, refuses to respect him, and declines to serve him, her actions speak loudly. They say the Son of God cannot be trusted. He promises to exalt the humble, but I don't believe he will exalt me. He says he will take care of those who submit to lawful authority, but I don't really believe that. If I don't take a care of myself, who will? In most cases, her children will, uh, will internalize what she does, not what she says. So here's the important question. What's your marriage preaching? Now, if your marriage is struggling, as most marriages tend to do at some time or another, my encouragement to you this morning is to seek out some help. Not only for the sake of your marriage, but also for the sake of your kids who are watching your marriage. Take the time to just seek some help. Work on that marriage. Now, because none of us are perfect spouses, when you blow it, and you will, apologize to your spouse. Confess what you've done wrong, how you've treated them in a poor way. But not only to your spouse, talk to your kids. Be specific about how you failed as a husband or wife. Talk about it, but also talk about the unfailing, perfect love of God. Now, quick side note. Some of you are saying, well, shh, my kids are out of the home. We don't have to work on our marriage anymore, right? Nope, nope. <laughs> That's not true. Because regardless of where your kids are, they're still watching your marriage. I'm 52 years old, and I still watch my parents in the way they relate to one another. And one of the reasons that I believe so strongly in the goodness and the love of Christ and God is because of what they continue to model for me day in and day out in the way they love and serve each other. And I say, if imperfect people can do that in a marriage, just think about how my God does that for me every single day. 
Now, what if you're divorced? Here's what I'd say to those of us in that situation. How we treat our ex-spouse still preaches to our kids. And this is where this is not easy stuff. But make sure you do everything you possibly can to treat that person the way Christ has treated you because you are modeling to your children the way Christ wants to love them. All right, are you ready for courageous decision number two? Or you say, that's enough, let's just go home, right? (laughs) Here's courageous decision number two. Do not allow your kids to get away with misbehavior. Don't allow your kids to get away with misbehavior. They're going to do everything they possibly can to get away with misbehavior. My youngest Tate, he could crack a smile and a joke just like that, and it would break me down in a minute. And as I was so ready to punish, he would, just, he would melt me, and I'd be like, all right, perhaps it's not that bad. I think it's one of the primary reasons that his older brother is now in law school. He is sick and tired of seeing guilty people get off scot-free. <laughs> we, we were talking about it just the other day. And I know I blew it in many ways in this area. And society will also try to make you feel guilty if you, you've punished your kids. They'll make you feel like you're too uptight and you shouldn't do it. But listen, for the sake of your kids, for their spiritual welfare, discipline when discipline is necessary. In fact, choosing not to discipline is a cruel joke. The writer of Proverbs makes a statement that we're all familiar with. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 24 Whoever spares the rod hates their children. Sometimes we get caught up on that rod. I want you to pay attention to hates their children. You see, when you discipline in the right way at the right time, it preaches a powerful message about the love of God. Who does God love? Or who does God discipline? Let me put it that way. Who does God discipline? Does he discipline those that he doesn't care about? Does he discipline those that he's given up on? No, he disciplines those he loves. This is mentioned in the Old Testament. It's mentioned in the New Testament. Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 12. For the Lord corrects those he loves just as a father corrects a child in whom he delights. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 6, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Now what's the goal of discipline? We say the goal of discipline is to stop bad behavior. No, not exactly. If all you do is stop or change behavior, that's, that's a temporary fix. Here's what discipline really should be intended to do. Not just behavior modification, but heart transformation. That's what we're really after. I'm going to go back to William P. Farley because I believe he gives a, a pretty strong process that gives us a shot at this, moving from behavior modification to heart transformation. Eight-step process, we'll go quick. Here we go. Step number one, discipline the the moment your child misbehaves. The tendency is to give some leniency. The tendency is to say, now listen, if you take your brother or sister's toy again, daddy's going to have to discipline you. That sounds like grace, but really all we're doing is training our child that they can disobey to a certain point. Pat Fabrizio writes this, Every time your child rebels and you ignore it, you're training your child. If she throws herself on the floor and you say, If you don't stop in three minutes, I'm going to discipline you, you are teaching her that a three-minute temper tantrum is okay. Okay. 
Step number two, always put discipline in the context of love. For instance, you might say, the Bible tells us that God disciplines us because he loves us. And that's the reason that I'm disciplining you. I love you too much to allow you to continue to behave in a way that's going to cause you or other people pain. Step number three, if possible, draw on scripture. For instance, if your child has just called their sibling a jerk, you might set them down and say, listen, we don't do this in our home. And not just because we don't like it, but because this is what God has to say about it. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21. The tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. It may not seem like a big deal to you to call your brother a jerk, but those words have power in them. And so that's something we're not going to do in our house. Step number four, make it hurt. The punishment must be severe enough that it gets the child's attention. For instance, if your daughter is an introvert who loves to spend time in her room reading, when she misbehaves and you say, go to your room, that's probably not going to hurt enough for her to think twice about what she's done. She probably said, great, I can spend the next 45 minutes away from this crazy family reading? You bet. I'm gone. So what we want to do is to make sure that we use discipline that gets their attention, that makes them think twice about doing that thing that they did again, not wanting to. Realize it's not good, and I'm going to change my behavior, and I'm going to have a heart change. Step number five, be sure. Be sure to express affection at some point during the discipline process. Hug your child. Hold your child's hand. Make sure that they know that they are loved. Step number six, Use discipline, use the discipline event to remind them of the good news. Take a moment to talk about, hey, the good news in all this is Jesus Christ gave up his life so that all of our sins, all of our misbehavior might be forgiven, and we can be forgiven by God. Step number seven, ask your child to verbally confess their specific sin in which they're being punished for. And then ask your child if he or she is ready to ask God for forgiveness. If the child says, nope, then start it all over. If the child says yes, then give them a moment to have a prayer with God and ask for his forgiveness. Step number eight, have your child make restitution. If your child has done harm to someone else, they need to make things right. I, I have a terrible memory, but one memory that still stands out in my mind is when I was a, a kid, I knew that my sister was with friends about three houses down swimming in their backyard pool. And so me and a buddy decided as we were standing outside in our backyard to start pulling oranges off our orange tree and just launching them three houses over and splashing them in that pool, not thinking about what it might do if it hit one of those kids in the head. Because that's just what kids do. You throw things without thinking. Well, eventually there was a knock on our door, and my mom ended up in the backyard, and she found out what we were doing, and she said, that mother is very upset, and what you're doing is not right, and so you need to make things right. And it wasn't enough for me to say, I'm very sorry. She said, no, 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 here's what you're going to do. You're going to pull a grocery sack full of oranges off the tree. You're going to walk yourself down to that house. You're going to knock on the door. You're going to apologize to that mom, and you're going to offer those oranges as a gift. That was horrible. 
but you know what? I haven't thrown an orange since then. <laughs> Nor have I had the desire. I mean, it was just not behavior modification. It was heart transformation. You say, wow, that sounds like a lot of trouble. It's a whole lot easier just to say to our kids, hey, knock it off, go to your room. Tired of it. I, I get it. But the stakes are way too high for us not to go after their heart. I think this quote captures it well as we wrap things up. Parents who tolerate child rebellion mock God's authority and expose their little ones to God's judgment. If you love them, you'll teach them to submit to your authority. One of the greatest gifts you can give your child is to be a courageous parent. Parents, we love you, we appreciate you, and we thank you for all you're doing to raise your kids to reflect the glory of our God in this world. May God continue to bless all of your efforts.